0: Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode LX Cleopatra, live from the Wheeler Center in Melbourne. On the 22nd of November 2016, Emperors of Rome had its first live show, looking at the Egyptian queen Cleopatra her relationship with Caesar and Mark Antony, and her place in Roman, Egyptian and world history. And now I'll throw to somebody who sounds freakishly like me. Here's Matt Smith. Thank you all for braving the weather and coming out in an uncharacteristic Melbourne spring. So uh, I would like to begin this by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land of which we meet today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to the Elders, both past and present actually wrote that opening of the book here so Ave, uh vaguely hands up i can see vague people out there who knows why you're here a <laughs> couple of podcast listeners out there Well, I'm I'm Matt Smith, I'm the host of the Emperors of Rome podcast, and uh, for the uninitiated, it's a podcast which is vaguely mostly about Roman emperors. We're uh, up to Hadrian, we just finished Hadrian, we're taking a bit of a break and talking about poetry at the moment, and every now and then we do a bit of a deviation, which is why we thought we've never done an episode about Cleopatra, we should do one and share it with the people and see if a couple of people will turn up, and a couple of you did. So thank you very much for that. That's really appreciated. Our story starts, as, uh, as Goskini says, Alexandria, capital of Egypt, the place of the fabulous queen Cleopatra, of whom it should be said that if her nose was shorter, it would have changed the whole course of history. So Rome is in the midst of civil war. The Republic is dying. The Caesars will rise, and Cleopatra shares the rule of Egypt in decline with her younger brother. And I would now like to introduce Dr. Rihanna Evans, Senior Lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: We've got a few people.
1: Well, it's fantastic. Thank you for coming. Um, maybe Matt should just carry on reading asterisks. <laughs>
0: no. I'm going to close that so that I don't get too confused, actually. Because the next thing you know, I'll be saying bye to Tatis and complaining about the sky falling. <laughs> so um, let's talk about Cleopatra, which is what we said we were going to do tonight, so we better make a start on it. So what sort of Egypt was Cleopatra born into?
1: Well, it's, a, it's an Egypt ruled by the Ptolemies, who are culturally Greek. They're Macedonian kings, they're pharaohs. And so it's, it's kind of a bifurcated society. So you've got native Egyptians who uh, live throughout Egypt. And then there's this kind of veneer in the north of Egypt where Greek cities have been built, like (coughs) Alexandria, um, which is the city built in the name of Alexander, whose general Ptolemy was the first of the Ptolemies. And then we have a dynasty that lasts 300 years, and Cleopatra will be the last of the Ptolemies. And it's a very cultured place. Alexandria has a great library. It's kind of a place of pilgrimage for people like you, literary types. And um, it's been a, very, a flourishing uh, society, a flourishing culture for centuries, but it's kind of seen as in decline at this point in the first century BCE. Um, and it's, it, it's starting to fall away from that a little bit, at least in terms of reputation. Um, Cleopatra, because she's one of the Ptolemies and they're very much culturally Greek, comes from a line of people who couldn't necessarily communicate with the Egyptians. In fact, there are stories of one of the Ptolemaic generals needing a translator to speak to his troops. So you can see how divided they were. But they had taken on one of the customs of the Egyptians, um, and that is incest. They they married within their own family, so often brothers and sisters, or maybe uncles and nieces. Uh, This was meant to probably keep the line pure but also it was meant to uh, prevent there being too much conflict so you don't Mm. have other families trying to power grab. Um, It was a real failure at this because there was just lots of struggle within the family. So as we'll see uh, in the first century BC in particular there are people getting rid of other people within the family quite often. So brothers and sisters don't necessarily get on just because they're brothers and sisters. Mm. So it's kind of in a little bit of disarray at but, this point. But
0: point to K. so Cleopatra did marry her brother as a two of, of her brothers. Yeah, well, in, yeah. We'll get to the second brother, but initially there is a Ptolemy that she's married and uh, they co-rule when when she comes to the throne.
1: That, that's the idea.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so so Cleopatra is born in uh, 69 BCE and would be 18 when she takes the throne of Egypt um and to uh just kind of set the scene a bit what kind of situation uh how did egypt and rome interact then what was the mediterranean like a little bit
1: it's becoming rome's mediterranean it really is um so rome has started to have a lot of power from the second century onwards because in the second century one of the most important things they did in terms of their empire is they conquered carthage once and for all so they've grabbed a lot of empire in the west and North Africa, um, but they're also grabbing empire in the east and was, starting was, was to Was Carthage
0: destroyed? <laughs> Cato wants I, to know.
1: I know you want Carthage <laughs> to be destroyed. Just, I, just
0: checking. Yeah. Right, okay. So they're grabbing a lot of territory. Sorry. Yes. Sorry, I do that. that.
1: That's an in-joke. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and uh, so they're, they're having, certainly min- mainland Greece has now become uh, Roman colonies, and uh, my favorite example of this, of how the Romans are taking over the Mediterranean, is that in 133 BCE, um, Attalus third of Pergamum just leaves his kingdom to the Romans. It's just in his will, a little gift to the Romans. You can have it, have Turkey. Um, and basically because he can see the way the winds are blowing, and he knows if he doesn't do that, they're going to stomp all over his kingdom. So Rome's really growing, and I guess that Egypt might see see itself as being the next domino. Certainly, there is a lot of Roman interest in Egypt. They have power there already, even though it's not a colony. They They have a lot of authority. Um, throughout the Mediterranean world. And really at this point, the only power to st- that could ever stand up to them is Parthia in kind of Mesopotamia, you know, f- further east. Um, and th- you know, they are the Mediterranean powers, so mm. they must be bowed down to.
0: And they've been meddling in Egyptian politics for quite a while at this point. They put Cleopatra's father in power. So they're, they're well-established at, at doing that kind of thing, aren't they?
1: Yeah, well, he had to go into exile briefly and the Romans kind of reinstall him. Mm. So, yeah, they're. I hesitate to make this comparison, perhaps especially right now, but they're often seen as the kind of USA of the ancient world that they will come and... <laughs> who knows whether that will continue? Yeah, <laughs> yeah let, let's
0: leave that analogy okay. there if we can. Um, so what was going on in Rome directly? There was, there was civil war, uh, Julius Caesar, argy-bargy.
1: Yes, it's, it's the ultimate irony, isn't it? Just at the moment when Rome becomes extremely powerful in terms of uh, the economy, empire, uh, militarily in the Mediterranean world, they start to self-destruct from within. Um, so I, I won't do the whole history of the fall of the Republic, but... In, some some of you may know that uh, there's civil war throughout most of the 1st century BCE for Rome. So there's been civil conflict even in the 2nd century BCE. And there's just going to be decades of civil war uh, between really often very charismatic military leaders, people like Julius Caesar and Pompey and Mark Antony, um, Marius and Sulla, and it's kind of decades of suffering for the Romans and power struggles going on. And this means the rest of the Mediterranean world is brought into this because they're, they're there to supply the Romans or battles take place in those regions. So it's not just happening within Italy itself. It's kind of a pan-Mediterranean war going on pretty much all the time.
0: All right, so we have some context. Uh, now, Cleopatra comes to the throne. Was, was it unusual for a woman to become pharaoh? Is that the right title that she's using it, at this point? It, it they're is, still using the title pharaoh. It. it
1: is one of the titles they use. Yeah. Um, and yes and no. All right, Ptolemaic women, are, they're power brokers. They're very influential. So we just mentioned that Ptolemy XII, who's Cleopatra's father, was briefly exiled. Um, during One of the reasons that he fled was that his elder daughter, the IV, kind of stepped in and pretty much mounted a coup, or certainly when he left, she stepped into the gap. Even though he had two sons, they, they were admittedly quite young, she's the one who becomes the ruler at that point. Now she doesn't last long, she's ousted. Um, but certainly women have had power within the Ptolemies for centuries. So we've had lots of co-rule uh, with a pharaoh and his wife. Um, and lots of those wives, by the way, were called Cleopatra, which is why our Cleopatra... Have you remembered Matt? The 7th? She is the 7th, yes. So um, we should really call her that because there are others. So can, they've been... Wait, can
0: I expect many pop quizzes throughout yeah, this? Yeah, absolutely. I, <laughs> I feel I should have more answers in front of me.
1: <laughs> so, well, and people will be counting up the score. But, so, so yes, women have had... I guess to a, to a Roman audience at this point in the late Republic, that would look like a lot more overt power than mm. Republican women had. So anyone who's watched Rome although you mustn't take it all as reliable. We'll know that there were women kind of, you know, moving parts around in the background amongst the Republic. But this is much more overt, you know. They appear in, in public on, in terms of reliefs and, and um, art in ways that you wouldn't expect at Rome, where women are at least technically behind a curtain.
0: All right, so let's, let's talk about primary sources, because I, I like talking about texts and, like, everybody would be well-informed for homework later on. Just what they're dealing with. Uh, so what do we have when we want to talk about Cleopatra for primary sources?
1: It's very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, don't, we do have material culture from Egypt, which is really good. It's a good source. So we have coins. And Cleopatra is the only of the, the female Ptolemies to put out coins in her own right, which is interesting. So that's very important. That tells us something significant about her. It's not just a coin with a pharaoh on one side and a pharaoh's wife on the other. Is Cleopatra issuing these coins? Um, There are a lot of reliefs, uh, particularly temple reliefs, and of course, portrait sculpture. And that actually tells us something interesting about Cleopatra because often in portrait sculpture, she's depicted as in very um, Hellenistic Greek style. So, you know, very beautiful um, hairstyles that are swept back like that. but in the temple relief sculpture, she's often depicted uh, in terms of being a pharaoh and sometimes actually as a pharaoh, yeah, a with male the, pharaoh. The fake
0: beard and everything.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah and yeah. Um, naked to the waist with a male chest, but it is Cleopatra. So uh, so she's got these kind of two sides to her public image. But so she we... does
0: have different audiences, though, so exactly. catering to, to the different crowds.
1: Yeah, yeah, She clearly she knows the right way to do that. All
0: right, so I'm going to move you along. What about texts? What do we have... Well, what do, what vaguely minuscule kind of amount do we have?
1: Um, Well, we've we've got a reasonable amount. It's all Greek and Roman, Mm. and even what's written in Greek comes out of the Roman Empire. Um, So we've got biographies. Um, They're not biographies of Cleopatra. Uh, We've got biographies of the men that she had anything to do with. Uh, We've got two biographies of Julius Caesar by Suetonius and Plutarch and perhaps the most... Significant one for us is a biography of Mark Antony by Plutarch. Now these are later. Uh, Plutarch's very late first century CE. Suetonius is into the next century again. Um, apart from that, we've got Dio Cassius's history, written in the third century CE in Greek. Um, we've kind of had that all the way along. Um, so it's all Greek and Roman. Most of it's later. Not much contemporary. The contemporary Roman sources are poetic. Um, and they come from the point just after Cleopatra dies. And they seem to be playing along with the kind of propaganda that's put out at her, at that, about her at that time. Okay, so, you know, history's written by the winners. It's, we'll talk about how that depicts her. And it's not good.
0: So all the sources, though, that we're dealing with, they, uh, Cleopatra is a tangent and Cleopatra is, largely speaking, the enemy.
1: Yes, that's right. Although with Plutarch, you could argue, in fact, I think you would argue that you get a relatively sympathetic view. Mm. But it's true that she does come into these biographies, they're biographies of other, other people, of men, and when she comes into those men's lives, that's when she appears in them. So this is why we don't know much about her childhood. We don't know much about her until she comes into contact with Rome, which is a shame.
0: So let's talk about how she mainly first comes into contact with Rome, and that was uh, the quite iconic scene of Cleopatra meeting Julius Caesar in, in 48 BCE. How did Cleopatra meet Caesar? What was Caesar doing in Egypt?
1: Well, th- this is a point of civil war. So it's in 48. Uh, since 49 BCE, Caesar's been at war with his uh, former son-in-law, uh, now enemy, um, who's Pompey the Great don't get Pompey and Ptolemy mixed up. This is a rookie error in essays. Did
0: Ptolemy get them mixed up? <laughs>
1: Ptolemy did not get them mixed up because he separated Pompey's head from his body. <laughs> Pompey ran away from Italy when the civil war started and he ended up in Egypt, thinking this is a good place for resources. OK, e- Egypt is not doing so well economically, but still... There could be allies there. Yeah, it's got a lot of resources. It's certainly got a lot of supplies, a lot of grain. Mm. Um, and this was a mistake because Ptolemy Thirteenth decided Caesar's probably going to be the one to side with here. What he would like is if I kill his enemy and present him with the head. Um, Caesar was irate, so Ptolemy was quite wrong to do this. He was not a great diplomat. He was also very young, though, so it's probably not him but his advisors. Mm. He was only about 14.
0: But at the time, uh, Caesar and her brother Ptolemy were kind of in Peter a struggle... Sorry, doy. Yeah, okay. One correction: <laughs> Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy were in a bit of a, a struggle, a power struggle. Then at the time, and and Caesar, uh, in amongst his chasing Pompey. Pompey, <laughs> Sin, since he corrected me about that I before, know, I, I know. was there going, "Oh no, don't make that mistake." <laughs> he waded in and fixed up that situation in the only way that Caesar could.
1: It's <laughs> way okay. too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> so Ptolemy the thirteenth is basically trying to or his advisors, obviously he's very young, trying to cut Cleopatra out of this power sharing. I I told you that this dynastic arrangement doesn't really work, and this is an example of it not really working. So Cleopatra's father thought that giving power, marrying them, giving them power together would be the way to keep the kingdom together, but it isn't because Ptolemy the XIII's advisors are gradually just sidelining Cleopatra and getting her out the way. So she sees Caesar as quite useful to her and Caesar sees Egypt as quite useful to him. Um, and Caesar doesn't exactly fix things up. He, he um, has this... We should talk about the iconic meeting, which is where you started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has this I, was go- I was
0: going to draw you back into that. Uh, okay. Yeah.
1: He has a meeting with Cleopatra. Uh, she wants to come and ask f- him for help as part of this conflict she has with her brother-husband. Um, and <laughs> we're told by Plutarch that she, she has to get to him in secret because Caesar's being kind of kept away. Ptolemy doesn't trust him. Um, and we're told in Plutarch that she's taken to Caesar in, what do you think? What's the famous version of it it's in a, the it's movies? A ro- it's a
0: rolled up carpet. So that is, uh, according to what we know about Plutarch, well, historically Plut- accurate.
1: Plutarch says in in a bed sack.
0: Yes. <laughs> which
1: means a kind of a mattress, which is not quite as romantic and not for great for paintings somehow. But, um, but yes, there is some secret meeting. Dio says much more prosaically they met in secret. None of the being rolled up in a whatever it was and then... Unrolled in front of Caesar.
0: But that's not cinematic.
1: No, no, it would be highly boring. Um, so, <laughs> so she gets together with him, and they they try to kind of reinstate her into power. But there's some kind of kerfuffle, and uh, Ptolemy the Thirteenth drowns in the Nile.
0: Yeah. So That's how Plutarch put it as well, some kind of kerfuffle. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly,
1: the, the Greek for that is still being debated. So, so
0: Cleopatra's 21 and Caesar's 52, not that there's anything wrong with that.
1: Well, she is closer in age to her her 14-year-old brother, husband, of yeah, course. Yeah, there's maybe something wrong with that. <laughs> From our point of view, certainly.
0: So what, was, what was the consequences of this meeting? <laughs>
1: Is this like a game of it where you open it? Um, Well, the tangible consequences was a son um, who's called Caesarian, which means the little Caesar. So she's she's given him a Greek version of Caesar's name. Um, Now, there is a little bit of debate about whether this is Caesar's son. Uh, Plutarch absolutely accepts it. Suetonius sits on the fence and says some people were quite happy to acknowledge this as Caesar's son. Caesar acknowledged it, but others argued that it was just politically advantageous for Cleopatra to have a son of Caesar, and that's why she said that. Um, So, you know, there have been debates about it. Overall, I would say ancient historians, modern ancient historians, accept that this is Caesar's son. Mm. Now, of course, they're not married, so he's not a legitimate son in Roman eyes, um, but he is still and will be a potential threat to anyone who wants to be the heir of Caesar.
0: And uh, But by by acknowledging him, that's kind of saying, right, he's there and, and Roman world deal with it. So Cleopatra gets a close association with Caesar and, and some kind of beneficial alliance. It's not just, you know, Caesar meets Cleopatra and they get a kid out of it. They get a close relationship between the two countries as well, even if it's not a good one for the Romans.
1: Well... I- a lot of people um, now like to see it exactly in those terms, that it's an alliance mm. that is is made all the more concrete by the birth of the Well, it's a bit beyond spitting
0: on your hand and having a handshake.
1: Mm. It, it's very much in... I mean, it kind of works in the sense that this is how the Romans themselves created alliance and this is how it's done in the Hellenistic kingdoms and other places too. So, I mean, this is why Julius Caesar had been Pompey, the great's father-in-law, because they had made an alliance and cemented it by marrying Julius Caesar's daughter to Pompey. Mm. Big age difference there too, by the way. Yeah, case you're yeah. worried about that. Um, <laughs> although apparently a happy marriage. But um, So this would be typical, but it doesn't quite work, of course, from Roman eyes because they can't be married. Caesar's already married and she's an Egyptian queen.
0: Okay, so a couple of years later... Yeah, we're shuffling things along here a bit, sorry. Cleopatra accompanies Caesar to Rome. Why did she go there? That would have been controversial. You don't turn up with Cleopatra and expect everything to go smoothly.
1: Yeah, it's 46 BCE, which is the year of Caesar's great triumph back into Rome. Uh, technically, the Civil War ends in 45, but he's pretty much... He knows he's won he's by this point. He's cruising down
0: the Nile. He's got stuff to do.
1: And he has kind of multiple triumphs mm. as well. It's not just one. Um, it, it is, you have to debate the wisdom of Cleopatra accompanying Caesar to Rome. Uh, you could see it through that lens of she's almost like a, a client king or a client queen um, who is being almost sponsored by Caesar here. Um, and that was not unknown for kings to come to Rome and, and you know, that gave them authority.
0: But, um, but Caesar wouldn't have been fooling anyone.
1: No, well, the. Uh, if, let me just read you a quote from Dio. Um, Dio is clearly, remember, he's from the third century. So there's been a while to think about this. But he's <laughs> he's a bit uh, befuddled by this too. Caesar received the most blame from everyone because of his love for Cleopatra. Not his relationship with her in Egypt, for that was only speculation. So what goes on in Egypt could stay in Egypt is what he means. But for, for what happened in Rome, she came to the city with her husband Ptolemy the 14th her younger brother, she's married him now, and stayed in a house owned by Caesar. Caesar cared nothing for the scandal, however, and made them both allies of the Romans. Mm. I think this actually speaks to, I mean, I hate to try and, you know, recreate the personalities of ancient Romans. That's quite hard to do. But when we did the Caesar podcasts, there is kind of a character trait, there's a long time ago now, <laughs> that comes through, which is that Caesar really doesn't care what people think if he wants to do something. Yes. Um, you might remember he stood up to the dictator, Sulla, when Sulla wanted him to divorce his first wife, who was from the wrong faction, and he just said no. So he's not interested in just pleasing the Roman elites. In fact, as we know... He ends up being killed by the Roman elites. Um, anyway, spoilers. So, um... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was a scandal, um, and you could say that it was a misstep on Caesar's part um, if if he were ca- if he cared about.
0: Read out the Cicero quote. I oh, like okay. Cicero's always good. Th- for a This quote. is much
1: briefer, yeah. and this is from just after Caesar was murdered in 44 BCE, um, when we presume Cleopatra's leaving at that point. He says, "I detest the queen." I cannot recall recall the arrogance of the Queen when she lived on an estate across the Tiber without great anguish. He talks as if it actually pains him to think about her being in Rome, even though she was over the other side of the Tiber. She was in Caesar's house and it was wrong to him.
0: I think the other thing that's important to point out about her being in Rome at this point is that uh, he puts a gilded statue of Cleopatra in the Temple of Venus.
1: Yeah, he's, he's building a temple in his newly beautiful form of Julius Caesar. It's a temple to uh, the mother Venus, uh, so obviously the cult statue is Venus, but beside her is this gilt statue of Cleopatra, which it always surprises me remains after Cleopatra loses in this conflict that is a spoiler, Um, in that Caesar's heir will eventually defeat her, but he doesn't get rid of that statue. We know because a historian from the 2nd century CE says he's seen it, so it's still there. Mm. Um, So it remains there, and and that's kind of interesting, whether it's seen as a a way of of capturing her there or would it be something to diminish Caesar's memory to take it away? Um, but it would be great if it was still there, but it's long gone.
0: All right, so Caesar dies, and that's as much as we're going to make about that. And Cleopatra flees back to Egypt, uh, flees back, returns back in triumph, goes back to rule that country. What does she do when she's in Egypt?
1: Well, she's fairly quickly widowed. Um, Ptolemy the XIV uh, apparently contracts some kind of mysterious illness basically on the way back. Um, you know, I've set that up to sound suspicious. It may not have
0: been at all. He, was ju- he just slip <laughs> off the ship.
1: <laughs> no, he didn't drown. He died of an <laughs> illness. Um, she makes herself co-ruler with her son, Caesarian who, if you've been following the chrono- chronology, is three years old now. But uh, there, there, are
0: there is coins of the two of them, There are, there? Yeah, I was yeah. Just about
1: to say that. Oh, there are coins right. produced <laughs> with the two of them as co-rulers together. So she's kind of still buying into this um, Ptolemaic and indeed pharaonic tradition of the male and female co-ruler who are related, except this time it's not the married couple who might be brother, sister, it's the mother and son. And actually, and I didn't mention this earlier when I was talking about reliefs, but depicting herself as a mother and especially at this point as the goddess Isis with her son Horus, who is Caesarian, is one of the things she does. So that's another way she depicts
0: herself a lot, as a mother. Mm -hmm. So now you've got Cleopatra ruling with the son of Caesar in Egypt, so I'm sure that uh, Rome is really comfortable about that. So let's go to uh, in 41 BCE... Cleopatra is summoned to Tarsus to meet with Mark Antony because, you know, civil war. What else are they going to be doing at the time? He's embroiled in a power struggle with Caesar's heir Octavian. He doesn't have Caesar's finances and he needs allies and he goes to meet with Cleopatra. But Cleopatra goes to meet with him and uh, and and now we've got another famous scene which, which Shakespeare has pulled apart and made with what he will. <laughs> <Brown> and Evans. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, they're not technically engaged in war at this point, but it, you know, it might be coming between the heir of Julius Caesar, Octavian, and Mark Antony, who had been Caesar's right-hand man. Um, okay, so it's a kind of another iconic scene, um, which we get a great description of in Plutarch. Which, if if you're familiar with the Shakespeare play Antony and Cleopatra, he's basically ripped off Plutarch. Right, he read Plutarch, which is a good thing to do, and used that as his major source.
0: With everyone else, he ripped off as well. Apparently.
1: <laughs> so uh, she arrives on her royal barge. Uh, a very very extravagant boat we have to imagine, and it's set up as a kind of spectacle, as as theatre for Antony. He's meant he's the spectator here. So she's got purple sails, purple's the most expensive colour in antiquity. She's a gold awning over her silver oars. She's dressed as Aphrodite, as you do, um, and uh, she's got these these little children running around who are dressed as Cupids. Um, and she basically just sails right past him. So Anthony's waiting for her, and, and she just leaves him there, and everybody kind of trails out of the square he's in, and he's left there on his own. So she sort of makes an appearance and says, it's all about me, and then he has they have to kind of rearrange the meeting. He has to come to her. Um, so this is often seen as quite important. Certainly it's depicted that way by ancient historians, um, in terms of the power dynamic between Cleopatra and Mark Antony, that she, it's on her terms that she has said, well, look, I'm the important character here. You're you, you you're sort of looking for, probably looking for resources from Egypt. You come to me. And uh, we're told that he was really impressed by this, um, that he, Plutarch talks about it in terms of a conquest, and uh, that this is why he's impressed by her. He's kind of impressed by her dignity and her Potzpah, which is also the the word that Plutarch uses. Uh, (laughs) um,
0: I almost gone, really? (laughs) Awkward. He he was familiar. That will be edited out of a live event, won't it? Yeah, yeah. So Mark Antony is now drawn into her her world and and Octavian has the opportunity to kind of cast his rival Mark Antony in in a different light. He can now go, you're engaging with the enemy, you're fraternising with the enemy. He
1: does, yeah, and we do have to bear that in mind. And you're
0: abandoning my sister who you're married to. Dude, where my
1: best line, yeah, Mark Antony is.
0: What was dude your best line?
1: um, (laughs) It has made a pact with Octavian, and as we've already seen, one of the ways to do that is to marry the two families together. So the pact that they make is that Mark Antony marries Octavia. Um, Now that, that abandonment hasn't happened yet that will happen in the 30s mm. um, but that's how he can cast it and actually we should bear that in mind even when reading Plutarch even though Plutarch's later that he's had the Augustan propaganda he's kind of that's what there has been history written by the victors um, and so a lot of the propaganda depicts Mark Antony as this guy who's given up being a great Roman general and just given way to banqueting and he just eats all day. And he's he's really overcome by the extravagance and the luxury of Egypt and Cleopatra. Uh, And he's kind of feminized by it as well in the depiction. So he's associated with the god Dionysus. Um, He actually does this himself, but um, Octavian's very happy to continue that for him because Dionysus is the god of wine and indulgence and theater. Um, Octavian will associate himself with the god Apollo the god of reason so the propaganda really works for Octavian and as the winner he's the one who gets to set the terms and the result for Antony even in the relatively sympathetic Plutarch is that he's the one depicted as letting it all go as just lax morally and in every other way and in fact he did He did actually go on campaign, and he had some victories in Armenia. So he was continuing his work, as it were, of a general. But then he held his celebration, his triumph, as it were, in Alexandria. And this is another coup for Octavian, because he can say, you're moving this iconic Roman tradition, or a version of it, from Rome. This is where it should happen. And you're doing it in Alexandria. Are you planning to move Rome to Alexandria? Hmm. Are you planning to abandon Rome? Um, So the propaganda that we get is very much along those lines. And and I have to say, Mark Antony... Well, I guess the the master move he makes in terms of losing the propaganda war is losing the war. But (laughs) certainly he possibly doesn't help himself along the way.
0: And they have three children together as well, don't they? Twins and another boy.
1: They do, and they have great names. Can I read the names? Yeah. Alexander Helios, which, of course, named after Alexander the Great, but Helios is the son, and Cleopatra Cellini. Who is Cleopatra, the moon? Uh, they're the twins. And then they have a third child who's called Ptolemy Philadelphus, which means brother loving. Um, so these three children, I mean, this is this is more than Caesar and Cleopatra had together, they're together for longer. And Mark Antony certainly regards it as a marriage by mm. 34 BCE. He's a, he has abandoned Octavia completely. And he set himself up with Cleopatra in Egypt and starts kind of giving away bits of the Roman Empire to his children, which doesn't
0: please Octavian. So uh, the relationship between Antony and Octavian finally break down. 41 BCE, they clash in the Battle of 31
1: Actium. 31
0: BCE. Oh. <laughs> I should now read out an email that Rhiannon sent me at 4.30, which is, you've got the wrong year for the Battle of Actium. Don't make that mistake on stage, Matt. <laughs> Give me a pen. <laughs> Battle of Actium, 31 BC. Yeah.
1: I know. You'd get the check your dates. Don't Um, worry. I'll edit that out
0: of the live show.
1: (laughs) No, I think she'll leave that in. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the Battle of Actium, often seen as this huge battle between Egypt and Rome. That's the way it's depicted in some Roman poets. But it was
0: more dramatic in the portraits.
1: In, yeah, in the portrayals, that it, it, yeah. what it seems to have actually been is a bit of a skirmish off the northwest coast of Greece. It's a naval battle. Um, and it, historians these days think that Antony and Cleopatra, and Antony didn't want Cleopatra to be there, but she insisted on being there with her navy. Uh, they think now that actually Antony and Cleopatra misjudged the situation, that they could have won if they'd stuck around, but they kind of panicked and withdrew. And they managed to get out because they were sort of enclosed they managed to get through the Roman lines and to escape back towards Alexandria so they're basically admitting defeat at this point and withdrawing to their home base and they're pursued by Octavian so it looks like it's all
0: over. From a a minute, and pursued by Agrippa where was Octavian at the time? No, he was on. being seasick. He was being seasick yes. that's right. So so but you...
1: that's not the way it appears in the Aeneid on the shield of Aeneas where he's standing there with his blazing hair.
0: So uh, so Horace (laughs) writes about this. Horace has a good quote. Yeah,
1: yeah, a different poet. Yeah, Horace, who's also an Augustan poet, um, has a great ode from book one of his odes, written quite soon after the event of Actium. Um, It's often known as the Cleopatra Ode. It's book one, poem 37. And it starts with the famous line, Now there must be drinking. Now we have to drink. Now let's celebrate. Now the earth must be pounded with free foot. He says it would have been wrong before today to broach the Caicuban wines from the ancient bins while a maddened queen was still plotting the capital's and the empire's ruin. With her flock of disgusting creatures, sick with turpitude, he says. And he means eunuchs, all right? So the Egyptians were, the Egyptian court is associated with having eunuchs, which the Romans see as kind of disgusting, or at least Horace represents it that way. He calls her the Maddened Queen. And it's been pointed out that Augustan poets never call her Cleopatra. They never name her, they just call her the Queen. Of course, Rome's meant to be allergic to royal families, so calling her that is bad. But she's a woman in power, and calling her the Queen Regina really points that out too. Um, So Horace there in the first half of that poem is really demeaning her as this disgusting, uh, morally bankrupt character who's just... She's drunk all the time. She's surrounded by these disgusting people, and that's who we've defeated. Notice Antony, not there. He's not mentioned We just don't talk about Antony. Mm. He's a Roman, that would make it civil war. This is a foreign war that we've won that we can have a triumph about. Um, So Antony kind of gets brushed. He doesn't, it appears sometimes, but often just brushed away. There's concentration on Cleopatra.
0: So realizing that they are defeated, Cleopatra and Mark Antony decide to end their lives on their own terms. So um, any attempt to fight or bargain or deal with Octavian just kind of falls by the wayside unsuccessfully.
1: Well Cleopatra does attempt to make terms with him. Yes. This is often represented especially in films as, you know, as, the as one man she can't yeah, overcome. Yeah. yeah. But, mm. you know, she she probably actually asked for some kind of limited rule in Egypt if he and would agree to pay presumably. Um, but he just says no, he won't have any of it. So they both decide um, on suicide as the option, both Antony and Cleopatra, and then it becomes a bit of a comedy of errors in that, or at least end of <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> not comedy, in that apparently Antony thought Cleopatra was already dead when he killed himself, and he kind of dies over her, and she is still alive. Um, and then the iconic death of Cleopatra, we don't actually know how she killed herself. I mean, mm. the the... The way that we all want, or that we learn and all we want to believe, I guess, is that she has the, the snakes, the asps, brought secretly to her in a bowl of figs, it's often said. Um, and then, so no-one knows. They think she's just being brought food, but she kills herself by applying the snakes
0: to her body somewhere and the poison kills her. So the, the downside of staying alive, apparently, is, uh, is that you are going to be used in a triumph by Octavian, yes. isn't it? So that's something that they definitely want to avoid yes. by doing this
1: Absolutely. And um, the Horace poem that I was quoting before actually turns halfway through from she's disgusting to, wow, she's really admirable in death. Um, That he says at the end, she showed no sign of womanish, womanish fear. Uh, And he ends it by saying she, she, you know, she went back, but she dared to gaze at her fallen palace, which wasn't actually fallen, but anyway, with a calm face and handle the poisonous snakes with courage so that her body might drink the venom. Um, And right at the end, a woman never humbled, refusing to be led in a showy triumph. So there's a kind of grudging respect for her. Uh, and historians have argued about whether this is good or bad for Octavian. Would mm. it have been a major coup for him to have Cleopatra to drag along in his triumph and put on show? Well, maybe so, because apparently he had a statue of her instead of her.
0: And he did drag the kids through. And the
1: children of Antony and
0: Cleopatra. In chains, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but others more recently have said it actually would have been a bit awkward for him, and it's, it was... Kind of convenient, there are even some conspiracy theories that maybe he did away with her. Mm. nobody really believes that, um, but you know he may have breathed a sigh of relief that he just didn 't have to do, deal with this slightly anomalous queen anymore it's not quite the same as having a great warrior to drag along you know a male warrior to drag along in your triumph. Um, so either way, she's not there for the triumph. She, she doesn't have to endure that, which is the point of the suicide, of course.
0: And so she and Antony are, are buried together in Alexandria in a tomb. Indeed. Which would be great to know where that is.
1: <laughs> well, um, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it'll be <laughs> discovered.
0: So we have a vision of Cleopatra as a great beauty, but her intelligence and intel- intellect were praised much more often than her looks or at least her her being beautiful.
1: Well, it's kind of interesting when you look at the ancient texts because they do talk about her appearance, Mm. probably a bit more than they would talk about men, although it has to be said the biographers often do have a paragraph describing what the person was like. But then, of course, we don't have a biography of Cleopatra. So in the biography of Mark Antony, you'd expect a description of Antony at some point, but we do also get a description of Cleopatra. So there is this concentration on her looks, um, it, doesn't, as a, as it, doesn't, beauty, it doesn't describe her mm. as, a, in fact, it describes her as not a beauty. For indeed, I'll read a quick passage from Plutarch, I think we've got time. For indeed, her own beauty, as they say, was not in and of itself completely incomparable. That's a very roundabout way of describing it. Nor was it the sort that would astound those who saw her. But interaction with her was captivating. So it was all about her personality. And her appearance, along with her persuasiveness in discussion, and her character that accompanied every interchange was stimulating. Pleasure also came with the tone of her voice. And her tongue was like a many-stringed instrument. She could turn it easily to whichever language she wished. And she did not need an interpreter to converse with barbarians. The kings before her did not undertake to learn the Egyptian language, but she did. So she didn't need the interpreter on the battlefield. Um, and she, she, she was clearly very intelligent and, and you know, a, uh, um, a strategizer. Um, and that's what she gets praised for. And indeed, one of the coins we have, a famous one of Antony on one side and Cleopatra on the other, she is depicted with um, kind of a hook nose. Getting back to Mm. asterisks. So, you know, not particularly... She's sort of being depicted as a Hellenistic queen there, but not in the the conventional, idealised way. Uh, It seems a more realistic view.
0: So Hollywood's given us quite a misconception, then, of of what we should expect.
1: She was no Liz Taylor, apparently, in terms of looks. But but it has continued that insistence upon thinking about her appearance, of, of being really important, okay, in ways that you wouldn't about male leaders. Um, and I, I guess we're used to that kind of double standard. Mm. Um, and this particularly struck me when I looked at a, an iconic reference work uh, many years ago. Now, there's a new version of this now, so don't be too shocked. But uh, if, especially if you're an undergrad, there are some here tonight, and you need to know something about a character from antiquity, you should go not to Wikipedia, but to the Oxford Classical Dictionary. All right, and when I was an undergraduate, it was the second edition. There is now a fourth edition, so it's not like this anymore. But I used to play this game with my students when I got them to read both versions of it.
0: Wait, wait, when, was the, when did the edition come now, out? Now,
1: admittedly, the second edition came out in 1949. But in the early 90s, it was still, the, until 1997, this was the one you could read. Let me just read you a passage about Cleopatra VII. She was attractive rather than beautiful. I suppose that's playing on Plutarch. Highly educated, a good organiser, fearless, and amazingly alive. Brought up at a corrupt court, she was always her own law. Almost certainly, she never loved any man. (laughs) I don't know how they knew that. Um, Her two love affairs, which, by the way, are the only... Julius Caesar and Mark Antony the only men we know of that she ever slept with. Okay, possibly she didn't sleep with either of her brothers who were quite young. She didn't have children with them. Okay, her two love affairs were to gain power, for the keynote of her character was intense ambition, which is probably a good thing for Julius Caesar, but apparently not for Cleopatra. There's a lot more. There There is a lot of historical fact here. I shouldn't sell it short. But it ends with my favorite part of it about the Romans. So it doesn't end with her. It ends with the Roman attitude. They had feared her, a woman as they had feared none other but Hannibal. <laughs> Scary woman. Okay. The fourth edition does not do that at all. The fourth edition talks about how our represent, our kind of impression of her is very much shaped by the propaganda that we get from the Romans. So it's much more aware that we need to think about the context of the evidence.
0: But that, that's, you know, 60-odd years ago, and that was clearly being shaped by propaganda then, isn't it? So So it's been that... Influential throughout time, the, the Roman perspective of it.
1: Yeah, they're, they're kind of taking the Roman evidence at face value. They're mm. also, I mean, it's 1949, so this this is kind of the values of women at the time are, are kind of infecting that reference work. Mm. It's it's not a very um, it's not a very referencey reference work in some ways. It's it's showing us people's views in ways that you'd hope the reference works don't.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so. Where do we get our current viewpoint then for for when we're looking at Cleopatra? Do you think that uh, see what has come through here is very much an, an intelligent and powerful and um, and cunning, dare I say, woman? Whereas uh, the the Hollywood kind of thing concentrates on the beauty and the asp. I said asp, and 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 that aspect of the the drama and the and the romance and the that kind of aspect you don't so much get. Well, the from... intelligence.
1: Yeah, I think that is, is slightly changing, but it's true that um, Cleopatra as sex object has been... And it's before Liz Taylor, that's for sure, before the... Um,
0: Shakespeare, can we blame him?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think she's fairly in- intelligent in the Shakespeare play. But mm. certainly from, from the birth of film, so the earlier 1930s Cleopatra film, which was actually censored because it showed her in the bath of milk um, and you saw too much... And it was just the time the Hayes Code was coming in, so they cut that bit out. So she's kind of been this exoticized. it helps that she comes from the East, this exoticized, sexy female figure from the very early days of Hollywood. Mm. And, it, you know, it's very it's titillating and she's, she's still kind of a woman out of place. Um, and again, I think we're still working through this in that she's in charge and we're still not quite
0: comfortable with that, I think. Mm. Mm, but I, I think that Hollywood's due for another Cleopatra, Why I not? Think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, one who really looks like the woman on the coin.
0: Yeah, and one who acts like the woman we've heard about tonight.
1: Yeah,
0: I hope so. Rihanna Evans, thank you very much. You're welcome. So uh, we, we're now going to throw it open to some questions, and we have Usher and Snoop Dogg going around with some microphones. <laughs> And, uh, and they're going to nominate. And if you could uh, just uh, say your name and uh, you will be podcasted. Thanks for that. Uh, my name is John. Uh, is it the case that um, Alexander the Great
1: conquered Egypt and that uh, was a purely Egyptian sort of bloodlines up to that point? And then, as you said, there was no, like, intermarriage... Beyond that point, so is that true? And then, does that mean that she was in no way really an Egyptian? Absolutely not. And in fact, the the very unfair bits of the Oxford Classical Dictionary I read out do does actually start with a Macedonian princess with no Egyptian blood, which I can't, you know, I I can't say I can't laugh at that. So I didn't read it out. Um, but yes, that is the case. That the up until the conquest by Alexander. There had been um, Egyptian bloodlines, and the the Ptolemies, as we saw, married within their own family, they were Greek. They were culturally Greek. They were uh, Greek or Macedonian in terms of their bloodline. They did not intermarry with the Egyptians at all. There is, however, a question about who Cleopatra's grandmother was. We don't know. There are bits of that family tree missing. And there was an article about 20 years ago put out which argued that her grandmother could have come from uh, African stock, as it were. In other words, sub Saharan Africa. So that was part of that working Africa back into our knowledge of classical civilization. Now, that's quite controversial, and it's kind of an argument from silence. We don't know, but it is possible because we just don't know who her grandmother was. Mm. So there are gaps there, but basically, yeah, she's Greek. She's Macedonian. And as far Greek. as
0: she was concerned, she was Greek.
1: Yeah, except she's interested in also being um, a, a patriotic queen. Yes. So she actually takes on – one of the titles that she she takes on is lover of her country as well as um, – it's quite quite common for the pharaohs to take on the title lover of their father or respecter of their father. Mm. But um, she is the first to, to kind of think about her nation and as we saw to learn Egyptian, that's Actually, when she
0: comes back from Rome, she solves a, a famine problem which they apparently had there because the inundation didn't happen – as well as they hoped it would, and, uh, and the Egyptians were, were quite grateful to her to coming back and, and ruling over her them the, at that point. So
1: The bits of evidence we yeah. have from um, uh, votive offerings and inscriptions seem to suggest that she was a popular ruler with the Egyptians, not just with the Greek elite. Um, so she probably would have been a very successful ruler had she lived.
0: No, Maureen, um, is there any tradition or possibility
1: that any of her children could have had any kind of power in Rome? Ooh. Ooh, no, and you know what? That's a great thing to bring up because the one little nasty fact that I for- forgot to drop in there is that Caesarian, the son of the probable son of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, when Octavian, stroke Augustus is the name he takes on, comes to power, Caesarian, he's gone, he's killed off. It's awful. But he's far too much of a threat because he is a direct bloodline of Caesar, or at least can be claimed to be, whereas Octavian is the great nephew of Caesar and adopted in his will. So that's not going to happen. He's gone. However, the children of Antony and Cleopatra, are we think they survived. Certainly the daughter was married to a king of Numidia. So she's given a royal marriage, although safely off in Africa. Um, power at Rome, no that's, that's not going to happen because the winner in all of this is the heir of Julius Caesar, Octavian and he's going to keep it well away from anything to do with Antony or Cleopatra they're in the past, he's claiming victory over them especially Cleopatra Hi, my name's Alan
0: um, I do have Two questions, but I'll stick to the Egyptian one first. Um, you mentioned Acnea and how, um, and you also spoke about the depiction of Cleopatra and how that's different. So I get that, you know, modern sensibilities, we view Cleopatra differently. But I mean, something like physical, like a battlefield, I mean, without new information, how do we, why do we depict that differently now than we did 100 years ago? So, were you
1: talking about Actium? The Battle of Actium. I just didn't hear it at the
0: beginning. Oh, sorry, I'll I'll be a bit more clear. Um, Any battle for that matter, where if there's no additional information, how do we perceive these things as different than they did 100 years ago?
1: So primarily in terms of battles, you mean?
0: Um, Battles, yeah. Or any sort of physical remains, you know what I'm... (laughs)
1: Um, Well, I guess it's a big question. Things are changing all the time. They're always finding new bits of the Alexandrian palace. and get very excited. It's usually under the sea. Um, in terms of battles, where I'm not an ex- expert on battlefields at all. I just accept what people tell me about battlefields. There isn't much of a battle in terms of the Battle of Actium, and of course it's at sea anyway. Um, part of the problem for ancient historians is that descriptions of ancient battles in historians' texts are often not what they want. They want, a, they want one of those diagrams, you know, where the troops were here and they moved over there and then that happened and this wing fell apart. And ancient historians don't work like that. That's clearly not what they're interested in. They kind of tell you the overall outcome and they might give you an exemplar of one of the troops did this and it was especially brave.
0: And the detail that uh, Octavian was throwing up.
1: Well, they'll, yeah. It was they'll
0: f- give you some colour if there is any. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> hey People, <Paul>, come on. <laughs>
1: Um, but yeah it often is very difficult to reconstruct battles um, and it's not really my thing but it's um, it's very frustrating to people who want to know exactly how battles went Um, sometimes rediscoveries of battlefields and battlefield remains can help with that but overall we're kind of stuck with what we've got which is not always great written evidence I hope that answers the question sort of well My name is Ophelia, and I wonder why she dressed up as Aphrodite. That's a very good question, Ophelia. Aphrodite is the goddess of love for the ancient Greeks, and so she's kind of putting on a pageant. It's fancy dress, okay? So, I don't know, I guess some people do it now at Halloween, who you want to be. Um, And she's setting herself (laughs) up as... yes. Just as Matt wants to be Caesar, apparently. I hope you're not... No, 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 no. I'm I'm
0: Octavian. Oh, yeah, I
1: forgot Octavian's your guy. You you want winners. Um, Okay, back to Aphrodite. She is the goddess of love, and at least the way that 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 biographer Plutarch describes her there, he he sort of is setting up that she's trying to seduce Antony, so being the goddess of love is a good way to do that. Um, And... And also, she, it's just, you know, she's a goddess. That's, she's she's pret- pretending to be a goddess. It, it makes her very powerful. It means that she's kind of above ordinary human law. Um, and she's, it's just an impressive thing to do. And it's kind of like, I mean, it's on a, a boat, but it's like a float in a parade or something. It's all about, look at me. Look at me as I go past and I am the goddess of love, and you will bow down before me. And apparently it worked. So (laughs) I hope that answers your question.
0: Hi, I'm Chris. Um, Experimental archaeology, of course, can shed light on physical things, something that's not very much done in the past. But I've got a question as well as a comment. My question is, where do I go to see what remains of Carthage? (laughs)
1: Oh, <laughs> well, I haven't been. I haven't been to Tunisia. Um, certainly there are museums both in Tunisia and museums that have taken things from Tunisia where you can see bits and pieces of it. Um, you looked like you were going to talk there,
0: mate. Oh, just the problem with Carthage is that when you go there, you will see you will see Carthage, but you'll essentially see new Carthage because the Romans rebuilt it after, after it was flattened. Um, so... The, the Romans had a had a habit of going to cities that they didn't like and disassembling it brick by brick they did this a few times and um, and with in the case of Carthage they just rebuilt it from scratch so anything that you go and see there is pretty much going to be the Roman ruins and they'll still call it Carthage because that was its name then not but that it stayed along for very around for very long
1: yeah you, you are going to see the Roman version of it um, but I would I would suggest that if you can't make it that far or in you know, are unable to go, that you do a bit of a search for where any of the artefacts from Carthage have been taken because I bet there are other museums in Europe and the US where they've turned up um, and you might be able to get at them there.
0: Hi, my name is Nathan. Um, You were saying that uh, Cleopatra seemed to be universally adored uh, by her people in Egypt. So when Octavian had finally won, uh, was there any civil unrest? What happened in Egypt at that time?
1: Yeah, there was often unrest in Egypt, actually. Um, we don't know if Cleopatra was universally popular, but the evidence we have suggests that. Um, Octavian, or Augustus, as he very quickly became, would almost certainly have been unpopular there. He's an outsider coming in. You know, he, he, he doesn't learn Egyptian. Um, he also treats Egypt in a very special way, in that he becomes the first emperor and he divides the provinces into senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. So senatorial provinces are provinces where a senator can kind of go and be in charge, um, kind of like a governor, you know, like we have a governor who's in charge on behalf of the queen, that idea. Um, they're, they're safe places. He doesn't have to worry about them. There won't be any uprising there, so he can trust the senator. Egypt is always an imperial province, and he sends someone lower level there, to be his kind of deputy, they report directly to Augustus because he doesn't trust Egypt. He's got legions there because they need to be there to keep the people in control. And if there are legions there, there might be an uprising from the legions, never mind the people. So Egypt is probably under the heel of Octavian after 31, after it becomes a province in 30. And I'm sure it was really unpleasant. It also becomes kind of one of the bread baskets of the Roman Empire. In other words, their produce is going to end up in Italy. They're not going to get to keep all of it by any means. It becomes really important to the Roman Empire. And when there's any kind of famine in Italy, they just get it from Egypt. So it's, it's a really significant province, but I imagine for the Egyptians it was no fun at all.
0: He also uses it as a quarry, which is quite helpful when he's rebuilding Rome in marble.
1: Yeah, a lot of Egyptian stone. And, it, you know, it's really exotic to get stone from Egypt. It's mm. it's come all that way. It's really beautiful. It's colours you can't get in quarries in Greece and Italy. So
0: so the pillars outside the Parthenon. Oh, sorry, Pantheon. no, Pantheon, sorry. <laughs> but not at that point. That was later on. Just ignore the, what I said there. No, the
1: Hadri- it's because we've just been doing Hadrian. The Hadrianic Pantheon, yeah. which is the one you can still see in Rome, has Egyptian marble. Yes. Right.
0: Hi, I'm Katie, and I'd
1: like to know if Cleopatra VII was her actual... ...name or if it was a given title, like... I'm glad you called her Cleopatra VII. Well done, Katie. Um, it, it was her given name. Obviously, it was a name that had been held by six others in her family previously. Um, and it was something we didn't talk about. Her name means the glory of the father... Right, Pater in Greek means father. Um, So she's kind of closely associated with her father because of that. But she gets all kinds of other titles. She's also the pharaoh. She's called queen by Greeks and Romans. She takes on titles later on in her reign, including goddess Thea. She's the first one to do that. That's that's my aspiration to take that one on. Um, And as I mentioned before, um, father loving and um, fatherland loving. So loving Egypt. So she kind of amasses all these other titles voluntarily, which show that she's got this loyalty to Egypt. So when we talked before about how Antony's depicted as not being loyal to Rome, Cleopatra's doing the opposite with her own country. Um, But Cleopatra is her kind of one and only name that she's given at birth, and then everything else
0: accrues onto that. OK, um, I'm Ryan, and I've just got two quick questions. One, um, I know you're an expert on Greco-Roman uh, writing, but I was just wondering if there's any ancient literary sources outside the Greco-Roman world that sheds light on Cleopatra and, the, and whether it confirms or challenges some of the representations of her in later Greek and Roman writings. And also, just quickly, I know Matt does this a couple of times in his prelogues to some episode. What is your intentions about... Uh, where to go from here in terms of the episodes and also the direction you'd like to take the podcast. Ooh, that's Spoilers. A good place to end, isn't Spoilers. that?
1: Okay. Um, sources about Cleopatra. But there are papyri that mention her, but I don't know if you you might include those in the Greco-Roman, although some of them are written in hieroglyphics. Um, they tend to be about policy. Um, we actually think uh, that there is one papyrus that might include Cleopatra's writing. In, in a, it's about it's a it's really fascinating topic about giving tax relief to an ally of antony's, and then there's a different hand handwriting at the bottom that says, "Let this happen, may this happen and that might be Cleopatra 's handwriting, which would be really exciting, but she doesn't sign it. Um, uh, uh, there are later sources, interesting sources, which I, don't, I wish I knew more about and one day I will. Um, Arabic sources so from you know what we think of as the medieval period, I guess, which uh, really see her as a great intellectual. They prize her in that way, which is quite interesting. Um, and that's, that's a whole tradition that we didn't discuss because we know less about it. <laughs> um, but maybe we should very briefly got 18 seconds to discuss where the podcast's going
0: oh um where are we up to Antoninus aren't we
1: Antoninus Pius yes yeah. the next emperor I guess we
0: just finished a, a, a trawling through Hadrian and we're now doing a bit of uh, poetry kind I, I of stuff. think and at the
1: moment we're we're quite excited about just doing lots of random things poets and and we'll, writers we'll get back to the
0: emperors soon enough we will get back to yeah them. but tangents are fun Indeed. Uh, And and yes, I think after that, just trying to recover from from doing a live podcast.
1: Yeah, it's been a bit (laughs) nerve-wracking, but you've been very, very nice to us, so thank you.
0: Well, I suppose uh, suppose that's it for today. Thank you all for coming. Uh, If you could give Rhiannon Evans a kind round of applause. You've been listening to a live recording of Emperors of Rome, held at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on the 22nd of November 2016. My thanks goes to everyone at the Wheeler Centre for hosting us and for their generous help and support, and a massive thanks to everybody who came and listened and asked questions and made us feel so welcome. We never thought that we'd draw an audience, let alone book out the Wheeler Centre, so it was a great experience. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. You can like the Emperors of Rome podcast on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. That's it today for Emperors of Rome, so until next time, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.